Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. As usual, before we start, this is your reminder that you can pick up a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist magazine. All you have to do is go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the code POD20 at checkout. That will give you access to a whole range of stuff available to our subscribers. It's been great to see so many of you signing up with this code. Yep, come and join the family. You get access to loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews, and an amazing archive of work going back years. Pod20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your discount and your membership of the New Scientist Global Family. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter Adam Vaughan and science writer and former New Scientist staffer David Robson. Hello, both. Hey. Hi. Coming up on the show, we have... Uh, Before uh, anything else, our thoughts are turning to our friends in Alberta. Uh, Obviously, uh, Fort McMurray uh, being evacuated has been uh, uh, extremely difficult, not just for uh, for, uh, the province and officials, but uh, uh, for the folks who live there. That was Justin Trudeau, um, as he was recorded by CBC News back in 2016. But we have David telling us why all the ums and ahs we make in normal speech are not signals of total ineloquence, but actually a sign of amazing language ability. Yay! Yay! (laughs) And we have weird news about a near-Earth asteroid that we're about to land on, or that NASA is about to land on, not us in the pod. We also answer your COVID questions, and Rowan has a frankly startling story about the penis bone of mammals. Yeah, that's a, that's a massive mystery uh, about why most mammals and certainly most other primates apart from us have a bone in their penis. And did you know that it's been argued that the Hebrew word for rib in the story of Adam and Eve, the rib that God takes from Adam to make Eve, that might not refer to a rib. It looks like it's a biblical Hebrew euphemism for baculum, that which is the penis bone. So the writers of the Bible's book of Genesis might have put this story in to try and explain why humans don't have a penis bone but other other animals do but first adam and not the biblical adam adam our (laughs) own adam um this was the year we were supposed to get our act together on climate change but you know we've been totally thrown off track by the coronavirus crisis so look tell us how we can get back on track 
Yeah, well, I've gone into about 3,000 words of detail in this in the cover story for this week's magazine. Right. Uh, well, as you say, this was 2020. Well, I remember writing the preview for 2020 last year, uh, December, and uh, this was meant to be the pivotal year to close the gap between the three plus degrees of warming we're on for at the moment and the 1.5 degrees that world leaders agreed five years ago we should get to. So as you said, we've been knocked off track in terms of our attention by COVID. So the you know a lot of set piece moments have been delayed. We found out in the spring that COP26, the big climate summit in Glasgow, was delayed until 2021. And this year, perhaps even more importantly, this year was the year that governments around the world were meant to submit updated carbon plans. They're called nationally determined contributions or NDCs in the UN jargon. And so far, only a handful of relatively small countries have done so. I mean, I know that all of us normal people have been completely waylaid by the coronavirus crisis this year. But in inside government and government agencies, how much have people had to take their eye off the ball of the climate crisis? Well, some boring meetings in Bonn have been cancelled and have <laughs> happened and have happened virtually instead. And, for, you know, I think a lot of stuff, all the IPCC stuff has happened on Zoom and, and other sort of virtual formats. But I spoke to Pateri Talas at the UN World Meteorological Organization to get a bit of a handle on what was going on behind the scenes. And he said, well, it's very well understood in those circles that the magnitude of the crisis, if we fail on climate change, would be something very different to what we're experiencing now with the pandemic. Yeah. And and I mean, I, also, people are starting to realise, aren't they, that we see crises all around us that are that people are very much linking to climate change now. And that's just with one degree of warming. So people are starting to grasp what it might be like with 1.5 or 2 degrees. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think if you live in if you live in Europe at the moment, then this year, you might not think it's been, you know, that striking. But if you look, if you're in the US this year, it's been the opposite. You know, the take some examples like the West Coast fires is probably the most obvious one. You know, the three of the California ones which were unusually triggered by lightning rather than the sort of dry winds they normally get in the autumn. They were the first, third and fourth largest in records going back nearly a century. And all five of the state's largest wildfires have occurred since 2017, with seven of the 10 most destructive since 2015. This is all partly because they had this big drought a few years ago, and we're now seeing a sort of fallout of that. You know, as you said, this is just what we're getting with around one degree. And I think, I guess the interesting thing is, even at one degree, it's clear that systems are starting to break, right? You know, you just can't physically get enough firefighters out there to tackle fires of this size. You know, it's just, it's already getting beyond our capability to cope. And then you start layering on, you know, other crises, which such as, you know, COVID. And that really breaks things, you know, it really means, we, you know, I guess a good example is the sort of people being moved out of their homes into, you know, places like gyms and schools and having to socially distance so they can't yeah. fit as many more people in. You know, that, that to me is um, a sign that we're already struggling as, with the sort of climate change we've got already. So with COVID, we've seen that the short-term effect on carbon emissions is, is pretty much negligible, unfortunately. But what about energy use more broadly over a longer term as a result of COVID? Yeah, so I, I guess at the start of all the pandemic a lot of people think oh there might be a silver lining and of you know the, on the environmental side and we found out this week there was a paper in nature communications saying that carbon emissions for the first half of the year were down 8.8 percent which is like crazy 
um, historic to climate. But as you say, that's not really going to make a difference in the scheme of things to climate change because it's this big cumulative problem. So on the bright side, our response to the, the pandemic in terms of the speed and the sort of boldness of which some governments have acted does show us maybe some possible routes to tackling climate change. You know, energy companies are having to respond to changes in energy demand. You know, so BP is cutting oil production 40% by 2030. I mean, yeah, it's obviously to do with transport, aviation and other sectors. And, and Shell, Shell had this interesting look at several different scenarios of how things could play out in the response to this public health crisis. So they saw one where wealth is prioritised and emissions basically keep going up. There's a second where public health is the priority. And in that world, emissions start falling towards the late 2020s. And it's worth saying that's too late. We need them to be falling now every year um, until 2030. And the third was a bit bleak and basically sort of governments turning inwards in a sort of nationalist type way. Yeah. What did they say at Shell? Because uh, we go into this in the mag, but um, give us a, a taster of what the what their thinking is. Yeah. So I spoke to um, a guy there called David Hone and um, he says that it really depends on how long things go on, basically. So it depends how long sort of public health concerns require these sort of big shifts that we've been seeing, such as large number of us working remotely or recording podcasts from home like we are now yeah so a, a year might not be enough to cement lasting change he said but imagine if such shifts go on for three to four years and he said to me people might even do renovation for a home office then they'd say i'm not leaving because i've spent money the whole system starts to change so he had this sort of interesting point that things flip if if things go on long enough because people have sort of got vested you know, money or time, um, and that means things change. And you know, and we've got the the next big climate meeting, COP twenty six. That's the UK is hosting that for the United Nations. What's your your best outcome that could happen? Well, the best outcome would uh, be uh, would be Joe Biden uh, probably winning the election yeah. in, in November, and then the US suddenly gets on board. I mean, you know, I sort of said that a bit flippantly, but that is true. You know, that the, the Trump administration is you know, not engaged at all on that side so you know that would make a huge difference the best outcome would be that china delivers on the rhetoric we had from Jinping the other day and actually submits a new ndc that's the climate plans i mentioned earlier and they do that before the end of this year and uk it looks like it's going to do one as well and the eu so the, the best outcome would be that big major emitters put new plans for how they're going to be more ambitious on cutting those emissions that's our sci-fi alert which even though this is my first time on the pod i know what it means it means we've got something in the mag that has already actually appeared in science fiction what is it rowan yeah this is about the asteroid bennu uh, which was named after a mythological bird from ancient egypt which is a bit like a heron so is the sci-fi alert that this asteroid is going to hit us um well you have to wait and see uh, it is a near-Earth asteroid. It's a class of asteroids called the Apollo group, and they're all like swashing around about the same distance from the sun as the Earth is. Um, and apparently Bennu has a cumulative 1 in 2,700 chance of impacting Earth between 2175 and 2199. <laughs> this asteroid sounds so 2020. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. don't be surprised if it just suddenly veers off course towards us at the end of the year. Um, but no, this, this story isn't about it colliding with Earth. It's about uh, a spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx, 
Uh, it's been orbiting the asteroid and learning lots of cool things. And the thing we talk about in the mag this week is that Bennu had a parent asteroid and it might have had flowing water on it. Wait, hold on a minute. What does that mean, a parent asteroid? Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. It was Apparently Bennu is a kind of asteroid formed when uh, something smashed into a larger parent asteroid billions of years ago and all the bits coalesce. And does anyone know what kind of class of asteroid this is called? A catasteroid? <laughs> that, it should be called that. It's, it's called a rubble pile. That's the official oh, name. That's much more boring. <laughs> um, a rubble pile. Uh, and looking at the images of Bennu, scientists have noticed that there are veins on some of the boulders in this rubble pile, and they seem to have been formed by running water. Oh, wow. Weird. Yeah. And so the water, we don't know how water could be flowing on an asteroid, uh, but Cyrus Rex is going to land and take a small sample from the surface of Bennu and then bring it back to Earth to study. So that's going to tell us what's going on, and you can bet that it's also going to be really poured over by asteroid mining companies. So what exactly is the sci-fi link here? Well, you know the Bruce Willis movie Armageddon? <laughs> Actually, it's not about that. Uh, that. That was because in that movie, the asteroid was a thousand kilometers wide and this one is only 500 meters wide. So this doesn't work. Uh, I'm going to go with asteroid mining for the sci-fi link and the Expanse novels by James S.A. Corey. Uh, we have covered them on the podcast before, but it, it works best for this again. We don't have an asteroid mining industry, of course, and we're not going to have one for quite a while. But when we do, these kinds of asteroids are going to be probably targeted first as they're very close by and they're going to be easy to drill into. So just to go back to that chance of it hitting Earth, that seems like quite a high chance. So what's the plan? Um, I don't know if there's an actual plan, but I did ask our space reporter, Leia, Leia Crane, about this and... I wondered if it might be less of a problem because it's a, this rubble pile and, uh, you know, you might be able to blow it up more easily. And she said that actually you never want to nuke an asteroid because then you get an unpredictable shower of rocks that just crash down that are even more difficult to predict and, and to protect ourselves from. And what you want to do actually is blow it gently off its course. And being a rubble pile might make it harder to do that because you could just blow bits off of it. Yeah, and if we did try and blow it up, you know, inevitably one would, bit of it would come crushing down on the White House or something like that, symbolically. Yeah, yeah you always get uh, the Statue of Liberty or the White House or some iconic structure is guaranteed to get hit. Time out. Have you ever thought about making your own podcast? It's never been easier to get yourself set up, especially if you choose Buzzsprout to host your show. Yeah, we've been using Buzzsprout from the very start. Each week, it automatically distributes your episodes to all of the major platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It also has loads of tools to help you promote your show. You get a customizable website, you can track your download numbers, and they even help you find a sponsor. If you're thinking about giving podcasting a go, we have a special offer code in the show notes that takes you to their website. Signing up to a paid plan by following the link below lets Buzzsprout know we sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card, and helps support our show. Yes, so just go to the link in the show notes to find out more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, although I am burning through partners fast here. <laughs>
Next up, please welcome the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, before uh, anything else, our thoughts are turning to our friends in Alberta. Uh, obviously, uh, Fort McMurray uh, being evacuated has been uh, uh, extremely difficult, not just for, uh, for uh, the province and officials, but uh, uh, for the folks who live there. That was Justin Trudeau broadcast by CBC. That was him talking about the government response to a massive wildfire raging in Alberta. Now, that clip went viral, with many people were gleefully commenting on how dumb Trudeau was because of all the ums and ahs, like there were 50 in a minute. Uh, But David, you've done a piece for the mag this week that just turns the tables on this, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. So, you know, in the past, like lots of linguists just thought the ums and ahs and all of these filler words, also words like like, when we use that in a sentence, like to mean this or that. Um, they were considered to be almost like these kind of neural errors in our processing, almost like a vocal hiccup or kind of linguistic trash. But actually, there's loads of really good research showing that they're collateral signals or a kind of meta language. And that means that even though they don't have a kind of meaning within themselves, uh, within a sentence, they do help us to coordinate our conversations and just help it to flow a little bit more smoothly so they direct our attention or they help to kind of flag up when we should be changing course in in the way the conversation is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I find myself nodding a lot when, when you're talking and it's no good because we're remote but uh, you know I, I find myself wanting to say even more than normal. Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's quite interesting, actually, because obviously in scripts for TV programmes, you never have ums and ahs. And, you know, actually, the kind of artificial intelligence that looks at, um, that helps us to transcribe things automatically, uh, they just like automatically edit out all of these filler words. Um, And yet we're actually missing something really crucial there about the dynamics of a conversation. So should we edit back in loads of ums and ahs into this podcast later? Make it will that make it easier to understand for people? <laughs> I, I can't I can't believe that I've spent years like trying to train myself doing podcasts and TV <laughs> and radio, trying to edit out my ums and ahs. <laughs> I'm doing it all wrong. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think there's so many misconceptions about them. Like we think it it kind of shows that you're less educated, um, but actually there's some research showing that more educated people use ums and ahs more than less educated people. Um, I don't know why that is. It could just be this kind of uh, the thing that if you feel like you've got the credentials to prove your intelligence, then you don't have to try so hard to kind of um, to kind of show off your intelligence in everyday conversation. I don't know. But absolutely, I think like we've really neglected the importance of these filler words. In the feature, too, don't you mention the idea that these kinds of filler words, ums and us, may actually have helped us evolve more sophisticated language, sort of far from dumbing it down? They've enabled us to become more sophisticated. Yeah, that's uh, totally the case, actually. So um, if you look at like other primates, you know, they have like very basic um, uh, conversational language, but they have like this kind of signaling that they can like um, kind of call out if a predator is approaching. But you would never have any kind of uh, word like huh uh, to like kind of question the meaning of that. You know, the um, communication is so simple, you don't really need to have uh, any of these markers. But the idea is that actually these markers are crucial when language does get a bit more complicated because it helps you to uh, question someone's meaning, for instance, or to kind of show that you disagree with them or to kind of show that you want them to continue. So something like the mm sound is actually a really good signal that, you know, just keep on talking. 
Um, and it's actually especially effective because the mouth is is kind of closed. So you're not even opening your mouth to speak. You're just kind of subtly signaling that you should carry on with your conversation. Now, the idea is that if we didn't have these kinds of signals, this meta-language, then we just couldn't have evolved the kind of complex and sometimes ambiguous structures that we use in language all, all day, every day. You you touched on this a minute ago, but it, is there a, a more ums and ahs used if there's a, a disparity in the rank, in the social rank of people? So if I'm talking to someone more senior, would I sort of dumb my language down in, you know, and have all these ums and ahs in it? Well, you mm, said the opposite, know. really, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, exactly. And I think it is the opposite. Um, in that I think actually, like, the more educated you are, the more you feel free to use them. Uh, and I think it's a bit like Adam was saying as well, that it's like in your, we're so conscious of, uh, of, oh, there I go again. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if um, you're doing it deliberately now, I've David. never been more so aware. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, Commanding yeah. our attention. But I think we're so conscious, actually, of how we might be perceived for using these, uh, that, yeah, when we feel kind of in a, vulnerable position or when we feel on display uh we we try to avoid them um but actually people's perceptions of them really aren't as bad as we think um so one of the old ideas was that if you amanar a lot it shows that you're kind of lying because you're having trouble creating your story but actually there's now lots of research showing that that's not true and the more you amanar the more you're kind of telling the truth uh it's almost as if like you're being more spontaneous whereas if you have like a lie you're trying to tell you're going to be more polished so so definitely i think we need to completely change our opinion of these absolutely crucial elements of language it's fascinating as well that if you think of like google duplex you know the sort of you know the, the computer generated voice of you know to make you know make your restaurant booking they've deliberately inserted these right to give exactly this i guess mm, yeah. i didn't know that but you could totally see how that would make you feel like you're talking to like a real person rather mm. than a robot yeah i feel like i'd be annoyed if i heard a robot going um i'm not, not sure <laughs> could you repeat your order yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah okay but are they are they universal david these words did you get them all in in all languages yeah uh pretty much and actually for some of these words they are remarkably similar and so uh one of these uh researchers who's been looking into that is Mark Dingermanser at Radboud University in the Netherlands. And so he looked across 31 languages, which were all quite uh, distantly connected from all across the globe. And he found that every language had the equivalent of a huh sound. And they might not have been identical, but they sounded very similar. And it, so he thinks uh, huh is almost like one of the most fundamental filler words, because it helps us to just signal the fact that we don't understand what someone's saying but we do it so quickly and so efficiently that it doesn't create a kind of awkwardness in the conversation. You can do this kind of turn-taking within 200 milliseconds, um, but using a huh to signal your uh, lack of understanding just passes the ball back to the other person very quickly uh, without any uh, kind of awkwardness between the two of you. With the you know Trudeau speech that famously earned him some disapproval and people weren't particularly impressed there were so many of them that it seemed like it's not possible that they were all kind of functional so are they occasionally glitches or are there cases in which they do actually um reflect poorly on us well you know with that speech i think it's interesting because he was asked this question which he obviously he hadn't prepared an answer for it uh, so he was thinking on his feet and the us and the ums there actually signal something really important they help to kind of 
uh, signal that a pause is going to happen in a conversation. Um, so if I just have a pause without an um before it, that's actually super awkward to hear because you you feel like uh, especially you know, on an audio show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like one of the researchers did that to me in my interview, and I felt like it was excruciating. Actually, she she left a really long pause because uh, you kind of wonder, well, what's happened? Have I like broken the connection? Or with Trudeau, you might have thought he was being distracted by something else that was happening in the room. Um, but actually, in this case, the ums and the ahs were really helping him to kind of think on his feet uh, without creating that kind of awkwardness. So even though it sounded a little bit, I don't know. Uh, stupid, as some people said. I think actually it would have been a whole uh, load more awkward and it would have reflected a lot worse on him if he just left pauses rather than the ums and the us. Next up, it's COVID update time. Yep, we've been living with SARS-CoV-2 all year and we've still got a lot to learn about it. And we had a live question and answer event online for subscribers about the pandemic and we had we are inundated with questions. So we thought as a service to you, we'd answer some of the most common now on the podcast. We answered loads in this week's mag as well, but here's a taster of just a few. Adam, where are we with potential vaccines? So we are way faster than we've been on any previous vaccines, which you know usually take around a decade to develop. We've got s- several now in phase three, which is the sort of mass scale, you know, mass testing of tens of thousands of people to find out if there's adverse reactions in, you know, certain subgroups of the population. Um, but the honest answer, Tiff, is we are still probably months away as much as the Trump administration uh, would like you to think otherwise. So what is plasma therapy or convalescent um, plasma therapy? And is that likely to be effective? So this is the idea that to treat COVID-19 patients using blood plasma taken from people who have recovered from the illness. Uh, so you get sort of ready-made antibodies to the virus. But the, the truth is, at this point, uh, we are, despite what has come out in some, it's been in some US news reports, we're far, we just don't know whether this is going to work. And what about immunity after you've had COVID-19? Well, it seems people are protected against reinfection. The thing is, we just don't know how long immunity lasts. It may only be months. I've heard some people speculate that it might be as little as four months. But again, this is one of those things where it's just an unknown at this early stage. Um, and one thing about masks uh, that struck me is that a growing number of studies are showing that the amount of virus that you are infected with can contribute to the severity of the illness that you then get and that wearing a mask can reduce the amount of virus that you're exposed to. So I, I thought that's a really compelling argument for wearing a mask. I think it is another interesting, compelling argument for wearing a mask. Yes, the, also, I've heard it, you know, that that question of like the dose, you know, the level of the amount of virus particles you get being slightly less, maybe because of face mask wearing has been sort of posited as one of the reasons why, um, although we're getting a lot of cases again, the death rate seems to be lower. There's a bunch of other reasons why the death rate's lower, but that's been thrown in as one possible reason. Okay, um, we've got loads more of this Q&A in the mag this week. Um, Let's just ask one more, though. Look, is there light at the end of the tunnel yet? Or does the tunnel go on and on? Are we going to have to live with this virus forever? Uh, so that's, I think there's two things there, a tunnel and a living in it forever. Yeah. I was, um, I think, you know, the, the infectious disease experts I've been speaking to and colleagues I've been speaking to 
they think it's likely that like the existing four human coronaviruses we have, that we're going to have to learn to live with it, that it will become endemic. I mean, you know, as long as we've got, given the sort of social inequalities we have at a global level and the interconnected world we have because of air travel and trade networks, as long as the virus is somewhere in people in the world, the fact it's got this sort of easy transmission by, you know, being asymptomatic in many people means it's going to spread. Uh, and even if a vaccine is developed, it doesn't mean that the world is necessarily going to beat or eliminate the virus because you're not going to give the vaccine to everyone. We don't know how long the immunity lasts and, you know, new people will be born who need it and so on. So, yeah, we are probably going to have to learn to live with it and adapt to it somehow. So not exactly the bright light at the end of the tunnel you were hoping for, Rowan. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> let's, let's leave it with that note of optimism. Um, so as Rowan says, there are lots more of these question and answers in the mag this week. So please do pick it up to find out the latest on what we know about what's happening with COVID-19. Now, I was going to say you might need a stiff drink after we discuss this next item, but... Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of potential uh, for terrible puns on this one. Anyway, uh, go on. This is the story we've all been waiting for. Yeah. Uh, OK, so this is about the penis bone. Uh, most I don't know if anyone's heard about this, but most male mammals have a, a penis bone called the baculum. Uh, and when they copulate, the bone slides into the penis and makes a nice straight rod. Uh, and it's really common. Uh, probably any dog owner will know dogs have got them. And carnivores have them, lions, cats, uh, rodents, bears, and even bats have them. And most primates have them, uh, even the ones closely related to us, chimps and gorillas, they have uh, a bone in their penis. And just to be totally clear, it's an actual bone. Yep, it's an actual bone. And they vary in size and shape, uh, as you might expect, between all those different species. So a walrus baculum is 22 inches long, 59 centimetres long. Holy hell. Yeah. So there are two questions here. And one is, what are they for? And the other is, why don't humans have them? Okay, so taking a wild guess here, are they a kind of sort of natural Viagra, as it were, like a mechanical Viagra? So animals can always be ready and and sort of last for as long as as needed yeah. uh, with this mechanical assistance right uh i think that is what they're for um and if you've ever seen dogs copulating and they sometimes get stuck together that's called prolonged copulation and it's quite possibly why there is a penis bone in uh, most mammals but we've written about a paper in the magazine this week that suggests a new theory that they function in order to remove the sperm from other males. So that happens in lots of insects, doesn't it? It does, uh, especially in damselflies and dragonflies. And in those animals, the, the penis is like a pipe cleaner that removes sperm from inside the female that she's stored from other males. What if she doesn't want that sperm removed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's lots of things she can do, actually, to avoid that. It's certainly in insects. Uh, so this seems like quite a tricky subject to kind of investigate. So how do we know that the sperm is removed in these mammals? Well, yeah, we don't. Uh, that's just what they're suggesting by uh, by having a look across the, the bone penis bone shape across 82 species and um, looking at what that might mean. And they've they've found a particularly compelling example. The honey badger's uh, penis bone looks like an ice cream scoop 
says the researcher. And she says it seems to be designed to scoop out the sperm and then cup the cervix. Yikes. Yeah. Okay, so tell us more about humans and not having a penis bone. Yeah, so in other primates with a baculum, the males don't encounter females very much. Uh, and when they do, they want to copulate for a long time. And then the, the baculum allows this. We're, right. Right. But whereas <laughs> in humans, the mating system is is loosely one of pair bonding. And males are with females for a lot of the time and can copulate a lot, but for shorter durations. And with human females, you know, ovulation is concealed. Uh, it's not like in other animals where it's easy to tell when a female is at her fertile point. So in humans, the male basically has to mate with the female a lot uh, and basically hope his sperm are in the right place at the right time to fertilize the egg. And to some extent, his ability to do that as and when required is <laughs> a signal of his quality, as it were? Yeah, uh, that's that's right. So the human penis works better when there's good blood pressure and a physical and mental illness and stress. Those things can impact its functioning. So what do Adam and Eve have to do with all of this? This is this is really cool, I think. So a couple of researchers thought it was just weird that the ancient Israelites would think that men and women have a different number of ribs because you know they don't. We all know that men and women have the same number. So why why would there be this story trying to say that there's that women have one fewer rib? Uh, and people thousands of years ago would also know that many other animals have penis bones. So the idea is that the biblical story of the bone being removed from Adam is an explanation for why men don't have a penis bone. And the word rib in Hebrew is used several different ways in the Bible. So according to this idea, instead of women coming from Adam's rib, they instead come from his penis bone? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would you rather that or a boring old rib? Yeah. Uh, leaving it there before things really get out of hand. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Adam. And thanks special guest, David Robson. Uh, do check out David's excellent book, The Intelligence Trap. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. And do get in touch for the chance of a shout out on the show. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Until next time, take care. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 